To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So today on the podcast, I have back on Ike Eastman. So Ike Eastman is the president at Eastman's. Uh, if you haven't figured it out from his previous podcasts, Ike is a character. He's like one of those guys that's always fun to be around. He's always making jokes and uh, always laughing, and he's got a great point of view and perspective. So we get him on the podcast today and pretty much just hit record Ike is notorious for being the for having really bad luck. And he he broke that curse this year with drawing a couple good tags and he was able to put down a great bull and a giant 200-inch buck. So we talk about that on the podcast among many other things and uh yeah, it's just a fun recording. I really enjoyed it and I think you guys will enjoy it too. I also want to thank Sportsman's Warehouse. Sportsman's Warehouse is a supporter of the podcast, and I really like that they have so many stores out west. Uh, a store just allows me to go in and, and touch and feel and look through all the products to see exactly what they're made of. And they have all the top brands. They have uh, Eberly Stock. They have, Sitka, uh, they have Six Hour Optics. They have Zamberlin Boots. So a lot of the same sponsors that we use here on the podcast. Uh, so like I say, you can go in, you can look through them, you can touch them, feel them. They also have a, a real knowledgeable staff. Uh, so they're trained up in each department, and the people that work there are passionate about the same things we are, and they're there to help. They're there to give you honest advice and honest feedback about the products. And uh, yeah, they, they just have a, a great staff, great store. If you're in need for anything, hunting or fishing, make sure to swing by and it's always good to to keep them in mind on these western hunts. I know as I travel down to to like Arizona for an over the counter, I'll always stop by a sportsman's warehouse. I can get my tags there. Uh, I can get anything I need, any extra gas, uh, any of the smalls. I know uh, a couple of years ago we got Dan a a mount for his tripod so he could tripod up his binos for hunting down there. Uh, they just have. All the top brands, everything you need, great store, and we really appreciate their support here on the podcast. So thanks to Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, give them some love, guys, if you need anything for the outdoors. Over at Eastman's, um, man, we're pushing out some good magazines. I just finished up an article that I turned in for the, the next issue, which is going to be the sheep issue of Eastman's Hunting Journal. That's a good one. I think I also have a project for the next Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal uh, it's just really fun trying to put together these articles that'll help you guys be better Western hunters. Uh, I also love all the subscriber stories and the MRS section. Uh, you'll hear us talk about it here in the podcast, but just great information to learn these Western states and take advantage of these, you know, some of the best hunts they have to offer, or at least have your name in the hat. So check out that. Check out our internet TV show, Beyond the Grid. Uh, we got some great episodes loosened on that. And uh, our show also on the Outdoor Channel, uh, Eastman's Hunting TV. And with that, let's get into this podcast. So it's Ike Eastman. Uh, I'm your host, Brian Barney. Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. 
Okay, made my way over to the Eastman's office here this uh, last couple days, and I uh, saved the best for last. I got Ike on here. Man, <laughs> the, oh, man. The, or the worst for last. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. After your season, I think it's going to be the best for last. What a season, man. I, I had I, I had one of those seasons that's going to be hard to duplicate. I really did. I, I, I was really fortunate. I'm known for not drawing tags. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get this question a lot. Hey, how come we never see you on TV? Because I can't draw a damn tag. That's why. You're known for your luck. Yeah. And that's not good luck. <laughs> yeah. Like I always say, if I had no, if I didn't have bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. And uh, so this year, though, I drew a tag um, that I hunted when I was 14. I actually shot my first ever elk in there. It was a spike. The first ever elk when I was 14. Um, I drew that again when I was 43. So what is that? 30, almost 30 years, 29 years later, I drew that tag again. Uh, and it's really not that hard of a tag to draw, <laughs> but it, it, shouldn't took ta- me, it shouldn't take that many years. It, huh? Yeah. It took me that long. And, uh, so that was awesome. I was really excited about that pumped and, uh, Todd, one of the guys uh, here in the office has hunted it the last couple of years and Brandon, him and his son hunted it last year. And then the year before that. So we, you know, it's not like we, it's changed a ton in the 30 years. Uh, uh, roads are different. There was oil filled in there when I was in high school and all that stuff. But, uh, drew that super excited about that. Then I draw my antelope tag, which I only draw that about every five years. So I had an unreal year, but to top that off, uh, we hunted in Southwest Wyoming again, like we always do. And it's, you know, it's where we used to do the, uh, father, you know, the old guys versus young guys hunt. And that's kind of morphed into, uh, as, as my father retired and, and he, as he says, I've killed enough animals. Um, as he morphed into that and, uh, it's become guy and I slight competition, not quite to that level, but a slight competition. And this year I shot a bomber of a buck, 202 inches. Um, we had that buck at, I think it was 290 yards. We saw him and he, 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 uh, ducked into some high sagebrush and kind of slinked along. And thankfully we had, we were above him we could see where he was headed into the, some real high sagebrush and then laid down. And all we could see was half of him, just his left-hand side. And he sat there for two and a half hours. I was on the sticks for two and a half hours. I'm cramping up. Corky, my buddy, who's on the spot and scope uh, in the rangefinder, he's on the spot and scope because you know how it is. If he stands up, you have that much time to take the buck. Guys on the camera for two and a half hours were sitting there going, oh, my gosh, would you just – we tried to whistle at him, yell at him. At one point, uh, Wendell wa- went down there and started walking or getting closer and closer, and he was within, I don't know, 25 yards. And, of course, what happened? A buck jumps out of there like he was on a cannon. Foo, gone. So, which is one of those things where your heart just sinks. And we weren't sure how big the buck was, but it was one of those moments when we first saw him, it was like, that's a shooter buck. I don't care. It, you know, we're, let's not argue if he's 200 or 202. He's big, period. Let's move it on. So for two days, we searched for him. That was in the morning, and we searched for him all afternoon and that evening. Never found him. And he was with another buck that was a – he was a three-point, uh, three-by-four, an older deer, and uh, we thought, son of a gun, can't find him. And so the next morning you wake up and you're like, okay, do we just go back in the same spot or do we let that that uh, kind of rest? Because we call it the buck hole. And we've, over the years, over the 30 years we've hunted there, I'll bet we've shot 
we were counting it. I think it was nine deer, nine bucks have come out of the buck hole. Wow. And they, they, they just love this spot. It's out of the wind. There's a grove of aspens on one side. It opens up on the other. There's water over, you know, they just have to go over the hill, feed up over the hill at night, water and feed up over the hill back, you know, at night. And uh, so it, we knew if we gave it enough time, if we didn't run out of season, he would be back because the places around uh, aren't as attractive. Mm-hmm. And he was, the first night we saw him, he was with six other bucks. And uh, so he was going to come back. It was only him and the three-point. And so we let that rest, and we went on the other side, uh, on the other side of the creek and, and checked some other spots. And in the back of my mind, that just, you know, you sleep on that, it just it eats you. Anyone that's ever had a situation like that knows what I'm talking about. It's hard to think about anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really hard to think about any other deer passing up other bucks and guys passing up bucks and, and – uh, so then it was the, it was just, it was just, we had two days left in the season and, uh, it was in the morning and we went back in the buck hole and we find a, we find the bucks he was with, but he and the three point aren't with him. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is it. He ran somewhere else. Somebody shot him or he's gone. We'll never see him again. Right. And, uh, so at lunch, I'm just heartbroken. I'm like, this is horrible. So I told Corky, I said, well, let's go back over there this afternoon. And we'll just, you know, if we find, we'll come in from a different direction. We'll make sure that the sun's in our face this time in hopes that they went up into the Aspens. And so we do that, which, you know, adds a level of complexity. It's not something you want to do. You don't want to have, you want the, the sun in your back, right? But the sun's going down. It's not going to be very much time. The sun will be behind the hill. We'll have plenty of light left, but it. we'll see if they're up in the up in the. Gives you a good view of the aspens right. where you think whereas, he is. Whereas if you come in the other way, you get over the top and you're on top of the aspens, you and then they, they blow out. Right. Yeah, okay. Yep. yep. So we go in that way, and a buck stands up right at the base of the aspens, right at right the huge sagebrush right at the base of the aspen. Buck stands up. I'm like, okay, that's the buck from this morning. And another buck stands up. I was like, Holy cow, that's the three-point that he was with. He's got to be here somewhere. And we're just picking it apart with a, with a spot and scope. And they're 260 yards. And they can't figure out what we are because all they can see is our heads. They can't figure it out. And, and you can tell deer, they're standing around. One, one buck's kind of feeding. The other bucks are a little nervous. I'm like, this is going to happen. I get set up. And, and then, you know, the whole conversation is, which one is he? Is he there? Which one is he? And between Corky and Guy and I, and it, there's, there's, I don't see him. He's, I don't, you know, and, and then he stood up. He all, he let all those other bucks stand or stand up there and none of them got nervous. And I think he got nervous and he stood up, but he stood up with a buck standing in front of him. Oh. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is not going to happen. He's going to come flying out of here on a rocket and we're not going to have a shot. He'll be in the, you know, be in the Aspen Grove before I get anything off. And, uh, he takes three steps. And I think what happened is he couldn't see around the buck. So he takes three steps to look around the buck. And, and, uh, I asked guy, I said, you on him? Yep. Boom. Shot him. (laughs) And at this point, I, I didn't know if I hit him because I didn't for what is the weirdest thing. Usually you can hear the whap, right? The mm-hmm. whap. I didn't hear the whap. Well, the wind was blowing the wrong way. He runs over and crosses the, cr- cross, crosses the draw, and he's standing there 
going to go into the into the uh, Aspens and be gone forever. The other bucks run past him. I thought, oh, I had to have hit him. I had to have hit him because why would he let the other bucks run past him? And I and Corky's like, shoot him again. So I load another shell. And at this time, by this, I'm rattled. Pull the trigger. And I haven't looked at the footage, but I'm pretty sure I hit like two feet above him and three feet behind him or some <laughs> stupid thing. And just as I pull the trigger, he just tips over backwards and dies. And it was eruption of excitement. And and uh, Guy and I are like, okay, we, we got to get over there and make sure he's dead. And, and Corky's like, well, I'll pick everything up and, and I'll meet you over there. So we get over there and I pick him up and he's got one of his points, he's got a ton of cheaters on him, okay? He's like a 180 with, 20, I think it's 27 inches of non-typical points, okay? One of his cheaters, his inline points is broke off. I thought, oh my gosh, that second shot, did I shoot it off? I mean, that was what I was looking at. Maybe I probably <laughs> did. Oh my gosh. And, and so we're over there scouring, the, you know, where he was and trying to find this one extra point so I, you know, get it replay or put back on and can't find it, can't find it. And I'm like, I, man, it doesn't look like he's – I've seen animals – in fact, I did this in Nebraska last year where I shot my buck, and then my second shot, I shot, and he turned his head, and I hit him in the handler. <laughs> he died too, but but you can tell when you hit him because when it where, – where it's broke, where the antler's broke, there's usually lead um, or copper, uh, mm-hmm. like, creases. Mm-hmm. It's fresh. It's yeah. fresh white break. Yep. Well, and yeah. this was fresh and white. It was. And it even – yeah, fresh and white and had a little piece of blood on it. I thought, geez, always I shot off. So anyway, we we take the, uh, get him all field dressed and super excited, and we, and we go back and I I tell guy I go I want to watch that footage and see if he misses it. So we look at the footage the first day when he's laying in the sagebrush. He has the point. When he came back and he first stood up, that point's gone. Somehow in the time that he was out of the buck hole, he broke that point off. Oh somewhere. wow! I was like, well, isn't that dandy? So he would have been over 200 if he wouldn't have broke that point off at some point. Or, over, you know, well over, probably 205 or something like that. What but a whatever. buck. It's 200. Oh, it's good my enough. gosh. Yeah, what a so buck. It was, when you don't really know, I guess you don't really have time to field judge. Like you said, when I see a big buck, I just know it's a shooter, and then I'm focused on getting yeah, the shot, yeah. shooting him. But you don't pay attention to everything he's got. Yeah. It had to look surreal when you walked up to him. Yeah, we, we look, and you know, it's one of those things you're like, okay, because his mainframe's only 180. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, he's a good deer. And as I'm taking photos and video and stuff, in my head, I'm like, okay, three, and I'm calculating points in my head. And I get to 25, and I go, okay, if I'm wrong, I, if this is 180, he's going to be 200. He's going to be way in the 190s at least. And he was 202 when we got him back. And that started. is a it just, big deer. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. And how cool it came in a spot that you've been hunting for years with yeah. your family. Yep. And that's your favorite type of habitat, too. Yep. That we know how sage, to hunt it. rolling yep. hills. Yep. And I, I like with the buck hole. Like, there's just drainages that bucks prefer, yeah. isn't there? Or deer yep. prefer. Yep. And, and they... They're just like a magnet to those spots, and it's a spot that every year you just have to go into and check. Mm-hmm. And even these drainages that are really good to me, I'll leave them for two, three days, and then go check them again because right. you never know when those bucks yep. are going to show up in there. Well, so, yeah, we we used to call it nature doesn't doesn't like a void, right? Because they it will always fill that, – that hole will always have bucks in it for whatever reason. 
So we were doing this this uh, imperiled this mule deer migration initiative mm-hmm. that uh, we did this video and we were talking to that the, video is so good oh, by the way it too. was oh it was a lot gosh. of fun a lot of fun to put together people are really enjoying it there's a ton of of deer eye candy in it I mean there's deer from from uh, 30 years of filming on the winter range iconic deer yeah. I uh, couldn't believe it yeah. it blew my mind and I love to hunt that deer herd so much yep. that I was all in for that film yep. I think that's one of the best things that we've ever put together here yeah. in East it was it was a lot of fun and it took almost everybody on the team in fact I would say everybody on our team had one part of that and uh, we did it was fun it was an absolute mm-hmm. blast but so it, the cool thing is I was we got to interview and this was before I shot my deer but we got to interview these uh, biologists and stuff, and we were talking about how how deer they they put these collars, on these radio collars, and they've learned how these deer react, and they call it the rose petal uh, scenario. And what the rose petal is is a doe will go in, or a doe will have a fawn, and then she'll teach that fawn where to winter, where to summer, or where to summer, then you know where to migrate to winter, where the breeding ground is, and then how to get back to the summer range. And then that fawn will do the same thing. And so it's like a rose petal. A rose, is, as the petals fall off, they don't go away. They just fall off. And so you can go into a basin, you know, like in, in uh, Wyoming or any of these high country basins. And if you see a doe in a basin that ha- and there's other deer, they're all related. One way or another, those deer are all related. In fact, the Gary Freilich, the uh, Wyoming Game of Fish biologist, was telling us that they collared a doe then collared two years later collared her fawn and then two years later collared a buck that was you know in the same area in the winter range and then started tracking them and they all ended up in the same basin it was a mother and a brother and another brother and another doe a sister all in the same basin in the summer and all at the same spot in the winter so when you see big bucks in a, in a, say, let's say you find a really nice buck in a, a basin and there's a younger, or a, you know, a younger, smaller deer with him, they're brothers. They're half brothers. So the buck hole, those bucks were probably all brothers at some point because at the bottom of the buck hole is where the does hang out. That's mm-hmm. where they breed. Guarantee that. And so you go, that's how nature works, right? So why is there deer in one basin and two basins over there isn't a single deer in it? Because either that basin got shot out, like they killed everything in it, or for whatever reason, a doe's never had to migrate there in summer there. Mm -hmm. Or it's those bucks, you know, that's where they go when they get pushed out of their main basin. Gosh, it's wild that they're learning all these information about mule deer, migration. to to technology. Yeah, and and their habits. Um, That's just wild that that's... Uh, how they learn it, you know, that, that they learn it through, um, you know, their mother to fawn. A- and then I even suppose you could take it a step further because I, I build such a relationship with these bucks in the high country. And anytime you find bucks in the high country or any place for that matter, but they're usually running in bachelor crews, like your right. six bucks or right. your eight bucks. And you usually target the biggest one in there. Right. But I have a feeling that these younger bucks – they learn running in these bachelor crews how to act and how to behave and how to keep themselves yep. safe. And they learn it from the older bucks yeah. and living with them in these drainages. It, it's just um, it's just wild that that's learned behavior. Yeah. And, you know, the other crazy thing, there's a bunch of crazy stuff I learned in, you know, doing that that uh, imperiled project. One of the other craziest things I've, I, that I learned from these, from these guys that they learned from this data is that these deer – so we always worry about – winters 
right? We're always mm-hmm. worried about what's what's the winner doing in Wyoming on the Winter Ranger or Colorado or Montana or whatever. What you know? What's the deal? They've learned that a buck will the a huge portion of determining how big that deer will be antler wise. Of course, it's genetics. Most of it has to do with from inception, from when he was conceived, all the way through the womb till he's about six months old, and then. And then there's, and then the factors of winters, I mean, as long as you don't die, but winters and forage are a lot less of an impact on how big that deer is. So it's the deer's health inside the womb in the first six months yep. that yep. determines how big his rack's going to be. Yep. Wow. They I have had a, no idea. They have a, they have a, uh, these guys have an example of, I think it was 2000, 2017. 2018 they had a huge a really bad winter and they had they had uh in december they had collared a bunch of does and then collared a bunch of fawns and i think they collared a hundred fawns okay only one of those fawns survived his first winter now here's what's crazy that fawn only got his entire life never got bigger than a fork and horn but he became a giant bodied fawn like 350 pounds. I mean, he was the size of a, of a small elk, a small, like, you know, a, a one-year, two-year-old elk. He never grew antler growth wow. because, it, because of the winter. Due when, to that bad winter. Yep. And the, oh, wow, due to the health of when in he the was womb a in the six months in that gnarly winter that he's never going to grow past a tube. I had no idea. I always think it's the forage, that season that they eat. I think it's the winter and the stress it puts on the buck. I had no idea. But it makes sense now that you say it, that the health of our deer herds is determined by those fawns and their young and that in the womb in the first six months of living. That's that's crazy. I, I never knew that. So, yeah, you can relate it to a preemie baby, a human baby. If they're a preemie, the chances of them having health issues throughout their whole life is greater than if they're a full-term baby. Isn't that crazy? Way greater. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's, I mean, why would it be any different, right? Yeah. It, it makes total sense now that you tell me, but I've never yep. had that thought in my own brain. Yeah, that's now they, wild. Now they learned that um, how f- the forage, what the for- the summer forage and the winter forage does is it determines how fast those bucks go from a fork and horn to a four-point. In this area in Wyoming that we're talking about, um, rarely, because Gary Frelick checks every deer that comes out of that drainage. There's only one road into this drainage. He checks every single deer, hundreds of deer a year, right? He is rarely checking three-point bucks. Most of the time, they go from a two-point to a four-point to a 180-class deer. because, And it's not that guys are really good hunters in that area because it's a general area for Wyoming. So there's people that would shoot anything. It's just there's bachelor groups, so there's always a nice deer in there. Mm-hmm. And they grow really fast because the forage in the summer is really, really good because mm-hmm. it's high country. It's, you know, it's when we flew on this on this uh, uh, this imperiled, we flew in August because I wanted, I wanted to see what it looked like, the high country in the August, because you, you get up there much before August and it's all snow. Mm-hmm. And so we flew in August and where the winter range is, it's desert, mm-hmm. sagebrush desert. And you get up there and it's lush green and it's, you know, 
unbelievable. I start scouting in July and August, mm-hmm. and I love hunting those mountain ranges. But it makes total sense now that you say it. And those deer are bigger on average at a younger age yep. because of all their forage they get. And so deer that live in these ranges that you're talking about and these migrating mule deer, it's one of the reasons why I love hunting alpine mule deer. But by four years old, they're 180-inch yeah, deer. They yeah. don't need to get six, nope. seven, eight to grow a 180-inch rack. Like, by the time they're a three-year-old, they're a full four-point buck that you'd yep. love to shoot yep. 170, 180-inch deer. Right. And that must be from all that great summer fo- forage. And that's that migrating mule deer that goes to where the best feed is. So yep. in the summer, living where it's lush and green. And they and- don't have to move far. You know, yep. they're not – in the summer, they're not moving – you know, miles a day to get no. forage. They're not moving a hundred yards no. to get between forage water and laying down. They're a bunch of big, big fat pigs is what happens. <laughs> they do. And they feed all summer long yep. too. Yep. Yeah. They don't start getting real sneaky until about September 10th or so. Right. I think when they strip their velvet. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like a, it's an, a, I, th- I think it's a hormonal thing and they strip their velvet and their mind starts going elsewhere. And it's, you know, I think, I think our hunting seasons are set up that way. Cause it used to be, you could hunt, you could hunt uh, in this area. You could hunt deer on the 10th of, of September. Well, all the big bucks were killed between the 10th and 15th. They moved it to the 15th, and it, it people started to struggle to shoot a big deer because they'd stripped their velvet. Mm-hmm. And then, then they're not worried about getting in the timber. You know, that velvet's tender. Mm-hmm. And so they get in the timber and all that stuff. Um, the other crazy thing that they found out, he's been checking deer for 28 years in this area. So Every buck that comes out of this drainage, and it's a big drainage. They kill 800 deer in this, 800 bucks. Wow. He's checked, never checked a, a buck older ten, over 10 years old, but their does live to be 15 and uh, almost 20. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? That's that's way crazy. And they're not they're not killing them. I mean, they're not no. Even, they're, there's almost 40,000 uh, mule deer in this area, and they're only killing 800 bucks. They're not even touching. Well, out of those, he has 20-some bucks collared. Yeah. And hunters killed three of them in two years out of 30 bucks collared. Right. 10% of the bucks yeah, out of two years of hunting right. these bucks. So it isn't hunters that no. are killing these No, things. it's not. It's hunting is almost zero pressure. Mm-hmm. He's actually worried more about roadways is yes. what I was saying in the film. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's what, the, you know, if you want to donate money, donate it to the to the Muley Fanatics and Mulder Foundation because they're actually funding uh, you know, fencing projects and road crossings for the deer and all that stuff. Cause that's, what's really making the difference mm-hmm. and, and buying properties that are key, you know, these migration corridors, um, I'm kind of giving the whole video away, but the migration corridors where these deer nick down to cross a Creek or cross mm-hmm. a river or cross between, you know, between two giant subdivisions or whatever, th- those things are key. And if you take that out, you'll lose a huge portion. In fact, they bought a chunk of property. It was like 300 acres. And if they wouldn't have bought it and turned it over to the state to manage, it would have ruined 5,000 deer's migration pattern. They probably would have died. You know, it was amazing winters. seeing that in the video, too, and the footage of those deer crossing mm-hmm. in that section of land that they bought. Yep. Yeah, that was amazing. Yep. Well, I think that's – so um, hunting those bucks early, like you're saying – you know, I struggle with that as well because I'm an archery hunter and I love to hunt these bucks in the alpine because they're susceptible. They right. show themselves more. Yep. They're velvet antlers. They're easier to kill in these bachelor groups. And, and I do notice that it's right around September 1st to September 10th, depending on the year. And what happens is that food starts to burn off up high yep. in correlation with them shedding their velvet. Yep. And the bucks are also getting their gray coats on. The and nice they're getting gr- colder. Yeah. And, and the gray coats keep them 
way warmer. Yep. They want to be out of the sunshine more, yep. you know? And so they start drifting down out of that high country and getting into that secondary living. They shed their velvet and boy, they just start to tighten up their programs. They're right. just, you don't see them during daylight hours coming right. out and feeding like you do just two weeks earlier where yep. they're out all, all the day. time. Yep. Yeah. And so that, that transition um, it's key that I get them before that transition because hunting them in the secondary living with my bow is extremely difficult. Right. Oh, yeah. So I'm always trying to get those real early dates in there. And I've also noticed that, that pressure will affect it as yeah. well. There's more and more bow hunters in the mountains. Yep. And I've noticed that these bucks are moving into that second uh that the the second living, you know, that they're moving into it sooner than they would without pressure too. Right. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I you know, I think there's I don't think there's an, more hunters. I think that I think hunters are becoming more opportunistic. Oh, yeah. I think And they're better too. Yeah. I th- yep. and the and the, the technology's better. Mm-hmm. I mean, geez, when I was 14 years old, you go in the backcountry for 4 days, no, it was it was embracing the suck. Now Four days in the backcountry is pretty easy. You got good clothing, you got good sleeping gags, you got their tents light. You got a forty-pound pack instead of a sixty-five-pound pack. You know, water filtration isn't a disaster like it used to be. I mean, it, it's changed, and and that's allowing people to stay back there mm-hmm. longer. Plus, it's not such a suck when mm-hmm. it's back there, so you want to do it more often. Mm-hmm. And it's the information day and age. Right. There's right. so much information right. out there that when me and you started doing it, yeah. I couldn't read anything about high country mule deer because yeah. there wasn't many guys doing it. Right. You know, I had right. to just learn uh, by the school of yeah. hard knocks yeah. and making mistakes. That's why all, we all have flat foreheads. <laughs> <laughs> Beating our head against the wall. Oh, well, and then you look at the technology, not only yeah. the rifles, but the bows, or what about the range finders? When oh, I first yeah. started range finding, I had this contraption <laughs> that you the size of to, a brick you had to swivel the <laughs> dial and the images would come together and it would give you a range but it wasn't the same range every time no. i mean you were almost better off guessing at what yeah. they were but the technology has come so far to yep. make us more effective as yep. well that's right and the bows will shoot further and the you know they shoot faster and they're heavier you know more force mm-hmm. and it's just on and on and on mm-hmm. but yeah so that was my mule deer hunt that was a blast and then we had i had an elk hunt um, in this area. And was it cool to go back to a place you hunted when you were 14? It was a blast. It it was fun because it's changed so much. Mm -hmm. It was neat to see how, how it's changed and how a lot of it's very similar. You Mm -hmm. know, the country's the same, but when I was in uh, middle school and high school, this area, which is in the forest service and the BLM, it's high country. I mean, it's, uh, up to 12, almost 12,000. It's high country, but they had an oil field back there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the 70s when there was an oil crisis or 80s maybe, they pump, they drill wells back in there. So there's a really good road system. Well, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, they, they uh, reclaimed all that. And so they took a lot of, they took the roads out or closed all the roads, but you can still walk down them. So it's like old logging roads, which makes getting in and out a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had a fire in there, which, you know, you know, elk, they love fires. It's like, it's like moss to a flame for whatever. And so it was fun to go in there, but we, we, we went in, went and dropped, uh, dropped camp off two days before the hunting season. And we came back in and, uh, hunted, I hunted, uh, the first four days of season, five days. And then it, it, it was over, I think it was over a Labor Day weekend. It just became overloaded with four wheelers and ATVs and people oh. camping. I was like, I'm out. I'm, I'm going to come back. Thankfully I, I had other stuff to do. I came back, you know, two days after that, it calmed down and uh, we hunted for f- uh, four more days and it was 
awesome. You know, we're in elk every day and I had multiple opportunities, passed up on a bull, uh, passed up on bulls at 15 yards and all kinds of crazy stuff. And then, uh, we had to, I had to switch out camera guys. So we had to come out and other stuff and we went back in there. Well, start. Yeah. It was going to snow. I had switched camera guys out and then we had to wait a storm out and we went in there maybe a day too early <laughs> and it was a mess snow up to your you know crotch it was it was you couldn't get around it was horrible but we were in there when it quit snowing so we, we ended up hanging out in camp for a day day and a half and then it quit snowing and it started getting sunny but it was cold you know below zero in in, in uh, december in september which was brutal i was i remember sitting there shivering underneath a tree going I should have just should have bring my my n- 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 November clothing. This is this is stupid. <laughs> you're just not prepared no. for it in September. No, and you're not prepared for it to go that cold, and it also shocks the body oh too. My gosh. You're just not used to yeah. it. I mean, it's like going uh, uh, straight from the pan into the fire. Yeah. Or the opposite of yeah. you know, it's like jumping in a cold bath. Oh Holy cow. man, is that cold? It, and the elk were doing the same thing. They're all standing on the hillside in broad daylight in the middle of the day. You know, standing there going, "What the heck is this all about?" And so we saw a bunch of big bulls and, uh, that, that, uh, we saw a real nice bull that night. So the next morning we come back and, um, we walk down this ridge, find the bull again. We're like, Oh, this is going to, this is going to work. We're going to find this bull. He's going to, he's going to bed up in this timber. We're going to go hang out in the timber above him for the, for the day and then put a stock on him tonight. This is going to work like gangbusters. So we go down there middle of the day. And now of course, September, when it starts to warm up, it warms up fast, right? melt snow is melting like crazy you're sitting in wet snow so ha- your underbody is cold your upper body's getting a suntan you know i'm sitting up there going this is stupid i don't you know there's one track one set of elk tracks that go up over the the saddle down below us i'm like i hope that wasn't him we sit there all day and you think through that yeah that's probably him and and uh sit there all day nothing ever shows up I'm like son of a gun so we walk back up to the top, up this real steep ridge and halfway up the ridge, of course, we're walking in our own snow. This is in the timber, so the snow's not melted there. We're walking up our own tracks and I'm walking along. There's a camera guy behind me and I think Brandon was with us then. And in my footsteps is a huge grizzly bear track, like the size of my tw- size 12 foot. Go, oh my gosh. And it's not melted out. So it had happened in the last hour, right? Because the tracks, there's, you know, in that temperature, the tracks would have been melted out and you could tell, no, no, they're fresh. I mean, fresh, you know, 10 more steps and there's a pile of crap and it's steaming like, oh my gosh. And, and we're following him out. Like, this is going to be bad. And then we get to a point where he turns and he goes, uh, he goes up a ridge and then falls right off, right down below us. Well, he's standing there. He has to be standing 25 yards from us because I can see 50 yards and the tracks don't go any further. He's standing in the black timber looking at us, watching us walk by. Well, I'll tell you what, the 21-year-old camera guy, he was <laughs> he was a little <laughs> excited. <laughs> and it's a little nerve-wracking. You're standing there. You got, you know, you got bear spray in one hand. I'm holding my bow in the other hand thinking, okay – I wonder if I could, I, what do I do with my pistol? Do I drop my bow, grab my pistol, or do I drop my bow, grab the bear spray? Anyway, he wa- and we got out of there and didn't ever see the bear. So he was a good bear. He could have ambushed us and had a hell of a meal. And But you don't think about that. That bear could have ate us all day because we're all laying on a hillside in the timber 
laying on the hillside chasing shade all day, mm-hmm. and we'd have never heard that bear. Mm-mm. Not in snow like that. Mm-mm. So that was fun. And then um, I had to go to Colorado and go with the, the EBJ hunt winner and our tag hunt winner. So Tag Hub, uh, if you're a member of that, you get thrown into a drawing, uh, which is probably a better odds than you would think. It's, pro- it's the best draw odds it, for, a, for a hunt of that caliber uh, that we have. I mean, it, it, it's one and not very many. And so if you remember that, you get put in this draw. And uh, so I went, I had to go down to Colorado with bow hunting, uh, bow hunt winner and uh, the tag hub winner. Tag hub winner shot a bull on like day two, which was awesome. The bull crossed in front of us at like 15 or 50 yards and he just tipped him over with 300. And it was, I mean, we, first bull I've ever loaded whole in a pickup. <laughs> we we're walking down a road after a hunt, going back to the truck and we hear an elk bugle. So we all kind of get ready. And there's cows filing in front of us at 60 yards, but we're in, you know, the road's in the black timber and they're coming from black timber to sunlight and they can't see us. So file, file, file. And uh, here comes this bull, steps out and squeak on a cow call. The bull stops in the middle of the road. Wham! Shoot the bull. He runs to the edge of the road and dies. I was like, well, good thing is he's on uphill, so we'll be able to load that one whole. <laughs> Man, yeah, that's lucky. That? Yeah, right? It's like that never happens. No, only a couple times ever well, I've seen that. And where we are going, where we walk down to the edge of the road, there's a huge timbered basin, and we could hear a bull screaming down the bottom. And I told those guys, I go, I'm really not excited about If we shoot something down there, I'm not sure we can get it out. Because this is as steep as you can think about. It's, I mean, it is steep. So we could go out the bottom. But if we got the bottom, we're going to ruin that huge meadow down there for for the EBJ hunt winner, which I know there's big bulls in there because we saw them two nights ago. This is this is a mess. So thankfully it happened. That bull ran up in the timber that we heard screaming, ran up in the timber, we ended up shooting him. Um, then I went on the EBJ hunt winner, filmed that one. That was awesome. We sat and watched a huge bull chasing his cows for an hour and a half, and he finally gets in a spot, and we have to run and gun and down a, you know, down a wash, a gully wash between two ponds and – and uh, and uh, he made a heck of a shot, 300 and some yards, and just tipped that bull over. I mean, it was like the rug got drug out from underneath him. Um, then we came home, and I, I was then I was able to uh, hunt my elk with a rifle because bow season was over. And I came home and uh, went up there and hunted a couple days and didn't see anything real big. And wind was blowing. The snow was all gone. It's hot. I was like, this is not great. And uh, woke up, and it started snowing like the third day started snowing and not heavy but snowing and we went into this basin where i passed up bulls uh we didn't see anything the night before in this basin but you can't see the whole basin and we know once again we know nature doesn't like avoid right this this area has had elk we've seen elk in there almost every single time we were in there in fact we did see elk in there every single time that we were in there in this this uh it's a big grassy meadow with some timber on the other side of the creek and they bed the timber and come out to, to the meadow and feed and we get in there the first morning and it's snowing it's overcast and uh we set up and we're looking all the way across the, the this is a tip all the way across the canyon on this big open knob we call it the middle ridge and and uh there's a bowl over there and we're sitting there going okay can't you know we don't have enough <clears throat> daylight or we don't have enough time this morning to take him, but we can. We might be able to get up there this afternoon. We're kind of formulating a plan, and I stand up from behind this tree, and I look behind us, and 750 yards is three bulls and two cows feeding right to us. Oh, crap. So 
we all huddle down. We're like, okay, how are we going to do this? And Todd's been in there. He chased uh, his wife's elk in there, you know, four years ago. He goes, I have the, I, I know exactly how to do this. So we go sneaking in there uh, around this basin, and we're going to pop up over the top, and they should be right in the bottom at like 200 yards, right? Works like gangbusters. Pull up. Here they come. And I didn't really judge the bulls. I, I knew they were at least six points. They were good bulls. Get in there. I find the cows. I can't find the elk, and it's and it's sparse timber on this side. You know, there's like a big tree, and then 40 yards, there's another big tree. So you're kind of running between trees, trying to keep the trees in between you and the bulls. And and uh, I can't find the bulls. I can't find the bulls. Cows are don't know we're there. They don't really care. And all of a sudden, I hear behind me a, and so that's like stop. I slowly turned around and Todd's pointing down and this bull runs from one tree to another tree. I was like, Oh crap. So I get set up. Todd starts squeaking on the cow call and that bull, thankfully he stops at the edge of the Creek before he dumps down in the Creek and into the black timber stops at the edge of the Creek. And I, all I said to, to uh, Luke, who was, who was filming, I'm like, you on him? He's like, yep. And I bet he didn't get the, the P out of his word. And I pulled the trigger. <laughs> And then the bull, I heard it, whack, and the bull runs over the edge. I was like, oh, no. If he's wounded, we're screwed because that other side is horrible. It's black timber, and it's, I mean, black down timber. How we're going to get him out of there, I have no idea. I mean, this is going to be you go home and get the horses type deal. And uh, I told them because we dropped our packs and stuff. I said, I'm going to sit here because I got the gun and I got the license. I'm going to sit here, and if he runs through that timber, I'm going to try and pay, take another pop shot at him. Those guys went back to grab the other stuff, and all of a sudden I hear this crash, whack, like somebody drove a D8 cat through the timber. thought, oh, no, he ran down the creek, and he's on the other side through the timber, and he's running through the timber, not trotting. Like, oh, my gosh, and just sick. Can't see anything, you know, panic. And those guys come back. I said, well, let's walk to the edge, see what the blood looks like, and play a game. And. We get to the edge, nothing, and you can see where he stumbled. And there's a huge pile of blood through the edge where he stumbled going down. Come around a corner, and what he did is there was a big, giant down timber that that had no pine leaves and is you know dry. He tripped and fell through that long ways down that log and took every branch the size of your arm off and died at the end of it. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of praise there. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was was a lot of fun. And a great bull, too. Oh, yeah, it's 330, 340 right around there. Um, You know, and, and it was one of those things, like, I was really hoping for 350 or nothing, but you know how it is. If a bull stands there that long, you you go – well, this was meant to be, mm-hmm. you know. And that's a dang good yeah. bull. Oh, that's yeah. a big, and mature public six land, point. DIY. Yeah. You know, area I haven't hunted in 30 years. It was, I'll take that yeah. any day. Yeah. yeah, good for you. So, that was fun. Well, you got to break in the cameraman, too. Luke, oh, yeah. Huh? I spent a lot of time with Luke. He, for those guys that listening out there, Luke does a bunch of our digital media. So, if you... If you were, if there's somebody who responded on a comment or something, it was probably Luke, mm-hmm. and he wanted to learn how to film. And so I spent five weeks with Luke teaching him how to film uh, hunts, and uh, he's a good dude. Uh, he's big. He's six five, I think. He's a big dude, so he's he's he eats a lot and spends a lot and, and uses a lot of space. But he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's so nice. I really enjoy Luke. I'm glad you brought him on the staff. He was an intern to start with yeah, and yeah. finishing up college, and he's just one of those kids that's so passionate about hunting and yep. and, and um. 
you know, also really passionate about doing a good job and yep. doing a good job for us and yep. the brand. And so of- I really like him. He gets everything to me so yep. quick and he, he's so nice to deal with and yep. um, he's been great on the podcast. So yeah, yep. what a great he's a, addition. He's a heck of an outdoorsman. You know, he, he is. Took his, he took his younger brother up this year on horseback and they shot a bull, just him and his brother and in grizzly country and broke him down and bring him out. And, you know, for 21 year old kid, He's a good dude. He's doing it, yep. isn't yeah. he? Yeah, yep. loves to fly fish. Yep. He's got a new fly craft. He's oh, always yeah. talking to me about yep. fly fish. Got a new puppy, so he's part of he's part of the wingman wingman crew. He's got a, a Sadie's a little puppy that he was worried about all fall because he got it. Ha- of course, who gets a puppy halfway through the fall and then leaves it with his girlfriend? Lets her <laughs> lets her deal with that all fall. It's like, well, at least she'll be potty trained when you get home. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. A puppy. I mean, they're not like having a kid, but. No. Uh, a puppy takes a lot of attention. Yeah. yeah. It's just a nonstop. Yeah. You, you can't, you know, you lock them in the kennel for a little bit, but for the most part, it's <laughs> eyes on them all the time when yeah. they're out. That's but right. yeah, good for him. Yeah, yeah, so that was fun. And we, and I killed a real nice antelope here in Wyoming. And he went on that. You and, love hunting antelope, oh, too. And this is the area that I've hunted. I shot my first antelope ever at four, at 14 in this area. You love hunting big antelope. Yeah. You're and good we, at it. We struggled this year. Um, they had a real, real dry summer and a real bad winter and so i mean we spent oodles and oodles and hours behind the glass and i just couldn't find anything giant i shot a nice antelope but i couldn't find anything that next level everything was the same size you know what i mean and usually you'll find one that's a little bigger or whatever but um and it and you know it doesn't help that that area they changed some of the regulations there was a ton of hunting pressure this year they added more tags and it's just you know, it is what it is. Public land hunting. It's what happens. Mm-hmm. But it was fun. I mean, it was good. It was a good hunt. Shot a coyote and got my truck stuck. <laughs> <laughs> <Good> stuff. <laughs> uh, I think um, it's not an adventure until something goes wrong. I know. Like every story you've told today, whether it's your mule deer or your elk, there's some circumstances that you have to overcome. Yeah. There, there's some weather that comes in. Your your truck stuck. It, it's just not an adventure until something goes wrong. Well, the the. Yeah, I want to, you know, the story that starts with, I just went up there and shot a deer and it was fun. That's boring. You mean nothing else happened? No, not really. Okay, you didn't go on an adventure. You nope. you went and just shot something. Yep. You know, it's got, it, it's, it, you know, adventure starts when things go sideways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, it's, um, it, well, and we're in this new day and age, and I just think it's so great. Like, um, you know, we talked about the old technology and how we're more efficient and, and how hunters are more efficient, but there's still awesome opportunity out there yeah. and awesome opportunity out on public ground as you prove this season i yep. prove more of our team members proved and, and we've been doing a long time but it, it takes this commitment uh, a year-round commitment of living this western hunting lifestyle and so right now we're into our tag application season and so you know we've been working that mrs in our magazine has such useful information yep. i've used that over the years because i hunt you know, every Western state that offers a tag for any species, I probably <laughs> apply for it, you know, but I, I've learned, you know, a ton of this information through this MRS. And now we have the internet research tool that you guys have come up with. So we're in our second year doing yep. this. It's, it's called tag hub. Yep. And, and it's a place where we've compiled all this information and more information to learn all these Western States and all the opportunities that it offers for mule deer, for elk, for antelope. And, and not only does it just uh, highlight 
you know, we have a, this, this rating system, blue chip, green chip, yellow chip, which is kind of a rating on uh, uh, how good the unit's going to be. And, and the blue chip is the top tier. But, you know, as we get into this new age, those blue chip units are tougher and tougher to draw. But I think where the, the gold is in the tag hub and the MRS is all those green yeah. chip units. Yep. And really looking over the statistics, I mean, the statistics that we compile in there for uh, a single season success rate three-year success rate uh, we rate the terrain and, and then we give uh, a to f rating on all this different criteria of access, of hunting pressure, and we give it a score at the yeah. end, one to a hundred, give it a score. Yep. And all this information, I mean, this is the information I've been using for the last 15 years to suss out these really good tags and these really good opportunities. And even in today's day and age, 2021, there there is still so much opportunity yep. out there, so many places to explore. And I know, you know, Two of my film hunts that are going to come up this year are brand new units that yep. I knew nothing about that I researched through Tag Hub, MRS, uh, through the biologists and and other avenues to find these units and then go go in there and just have these awesome experiences. And you talk about stuff going wrong, like, uh, <laughs> man, oh, I, you know, it's not an adventure until it goes yep. wrong. But I had this one day, I was hunting this unit that has a lot of road access and uh, I had a dirt bike for this unit. And you use your dirt bike to go on all these roads that you can't take a pickup truck right. on. Plus, it's 10 and then, times faster. Yeah. And the deal is with, with dirt bikes, ATVs, UTVs, they're a tool. Right. You have to use them as a tool. You can't get stuck in them. You can't get right. lazy and just ride those things around. You've got to ride them to a place and then take off and, right. and uh, use your boots to get you through country. And so that's what we were doing in this unit. It was tough hunting. It was a desert unit. Um, you know, we were finding bucks and we were getting plays, but it's just tough to get it done with a bow and arrow. But I had this one trip. And, and my, my bike, I started in the morning, I started going and, um, was I stopped at some point and there was a little gas coming out of the, the, the valve down there. And I thought, Uh-oh. Oh, it's just cold or whatever. Right. And a little gas is spilling over. And so I kept riding and rode it. And then I made this huge hunt up the hill and I come back and I get on my bike. And so now I'm making it back to the truck and I even take, check my tank of gas when it was leaking gas. But it ended up leaking gas the whole time I was gone. Oh, no. So I got back to my bike, and I made it maybe a half a mile before my bike broke down. Oh. And I had 15 miles back oh. to my truck that day. And it was in 80-degree heat, and I didn't want to leave my backpack and my scope with right. the bike. So I didn't jog it. I hiked the whole way out oh back my to gosh. my truck. And luckily, I was able to get my truck close to the bike and load it up. I mean, it was a little four-wheel drive driving, <laughs> but I got it there. But I, I just um, I think it's so crazy what happens on a hunt and you try to prepare for all these situations and right. scenarios but you never quite know what's going to happen you just got to kind of deal with it as it yep. comes like your hunts and like well, mine and well and i have a i have a saying this this is what happened on my actually it happened on all three of my hunts um of those three hunts i have a saying is don't swim upstream if something's happening stop think about what's going on and see if you can pivot and change for instance you know, I was talking about the, the pressure during labor over Labor Day. For We've tried to pressure it out the first day, you know, Friday. Tried to pressure it out. I was like, this is pointless. Everywhere we've been seeing elk now is a camper sitting in it. We, it's time to go. That night I was like, we're leaving in the morning. We're not even going to hunt. This is pointless. Because it would have just been an exercise in futility, right? So in a, a situation like you're talking about your bike, you can't, you can't, you can't adapt for that. But 
the next time you can go, well, you know, I probably ought to, I probably should have checked that before I left and figured out if I could fix it so it wasn't draining fuel the whole day. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you kind of pivot and overcome and don't swim upstream. Oh, you make a really good point. I like what you're saying. Don't swim upstream. Um, so there's this attitude out there that you got to never quit, never yeah. say no, never die. You keep pushing. Grind it out. Yeah, and, and I'm part of the problem. I push that <laughs> as well. You know, but, but my point is, is that there is a time to quit. There yep. is a time to reset. There yep. is a time to go home. So your Memorial Day hunt with all that pressure, like you say, you would have been wasting your time and effort in yep. there. Instead, you were smart enough to go – this isn't going to work. It's only going to get worse. Yeah. This is Friday. I can't imagine what tomorrow's going to look like. Yeah. No, I so. got to come back a different weekend. I got to do this yep. a different time. And it's the same thing, you know, hunting drainages, like uh, uh, the spot that I just hunted down in the south. Like we found this really good area around water and it was really good hunting. And the first day was good hunting and then a little bit worse the second day and yep. then a little bit worse the third day. And we're still turning up deer and turning up bucks. But there's a point there where you have to quit that and yep. we have to go find another batch of deer. We yep. got to go find something else going on yep. because this isn't going to work for seven days straight. We're right. not going to be successful it's, it's, here. So you almost have to know when to quit or yep. when to reset yep. or um, come up with another plan, when to adapt. Yep. When it, and this, of course, you hear this a lot now, but it, when to stop and pivot. Change, mm-hmm. change your focus or change what you're doing and try and get the odds back in your favor. Mm-hmm. So swimming up. Well, in that, that bike. So I was, uh, it was actually a film that we just put out. So right. that bike, it, uh, broke down. I got my truck back to that bike. Couldn't really get my truck any further. And so at that point it was quit and go home or I load up my backpack and I go get to where I want to go get. And I ended up getting in there pivoting, like you yep. say, and ended up finding a buck and killing him. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, it's so that's fun. So cool. oh, I love hunting season. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love the adventures it takes us on and um, trials and tribulations. And it's just fun to have adventure in our life. Um, yeah. yeah, it would be boring otherwise. Wouldn't yeah, it? I mean, like that grizzly bear deal and then having Brandon on your hunt and yep. Luke on your hunt. Well, uh, I hunted with, I think on that on that hunt, I hunted with seven different people. Oh, Not wow. at the same time, of course, but mm-hmm. seven different people. <laughs> and uh, we were, it was that, was, that elk hunt was fun because I got to hunt it you know archery and then early rifle and then we had a friend who uh from kentucky and he's been putting in for 13 years and he finally drew that tag and oh, so wow. we got to come back in november which completely changes the landscape you know there's no more cows they're not buglings but he and i shot our bulls um, and we filmed it it was a it was an absolute blast but it was cold oh my gosh was it cold in november i had this new sika puffy layers on and 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 uh, thinking to myself, what this is ridiculously stupid. But anyway, it was we did it, and it was a lot of fun. It was exactly the adventure that he was looking for. But we shot our bulls within 700 yards of each other. Obviously, one in in October and one in November. But like once again, nature doesn't like a void. We go back in the same exact spot, and there's elk in there. Mm-hmm. Same exact spot. You know, and it's so enjoyable to have these people that we get to share these hunts with. And And the older I get, the more I cherish friends and family, helping out friends and family. And and two, it's only making you a better hunter. You're only gaining more experience. So you would have been done elk hunting, but instead you got to go hunt this unit eight days in the same, in the same unit. I knew how to get in and out of places and where they'd be. And another eight days, uh, it it was and and to watch him, I mean, it's a hunt of a lifetime. The guy's 60 years old. He probably will never go on another elk hunt. I mean, he doesn't have enough time to draw the tag. It To watch the emotions for eight days of him passing up elk and the adversity of, you know, 
shots that were missed. Not he didn't miss anything. He only shot once, but opportunities that were missed and and on elk and he didn't feel comfortable shooting 400 yards all this crazy stuff and then have it end it was just epic absolutely epic so much fun i think i think i had more fun on his elk hunt than mine personally mm-hmm. it was frustrating but it what once again that's part of the adventure mm-hmm. well that's what hunting's all about yep uh so congratulations on your season i can't wait to see your films come out yeah. so that's going to be beyond the grid you think um so that one will probably be I don't know. I, I'm thinking about putting it on TV. I don't know. It'll probably be a Beyond the Grid this fall, you know, okay. this summer, like August. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, that November hunt's actually out right now. Uh, we, we, we did, a, a, I guess, a co-filming with a brand called Fieldcraft. And okay. I yeah. I, 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 w- I wasn't sure it was out. Okay. Yep. 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 So they, Fieldcraft is great, guys. I yes. really like uh, Mike Glover. He's yep. been on the podcast yep. a couple times. Yep. And so, you know, his, his deal was they wanted to come and film a hunt because – obviously filling your freezer as part of their survival, you know, it fits right in and, mm-hmm. and they don't have a ton of hunting experience. And so they, we agreed to take them on this hunt. And so they filmed it. And so it's on YouTube on, on Fieldcraft's uh, YouTube channel, which you can watch. It's, it's a lot of fun. It oh, was, wow. Was really I have neat. to go check it out. Take some military guys in there, which really helped packing that dang bowl out of there. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's good to have strong backs when you get a bowl down. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How awesome. It's on, yeah. uh, so Fieldcraft Survival is yep. on their YouTube. Yep. Okay. Yep. And it's uh Fieldcraft. I can't remember what they titled it. I, I don't remember, but it was, it's a, it's a great film. Mm-hmm. It's 15 minutes so mm-hmm. and i bet they got some good photographers oh, too yeah they do yeah they really do and, and elk don't live um elk don't live in ugly places well, do they not that i found <laughs> even the desert <laughs> units are fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much any place that has elk is pretty to me mm-hmm. um yeah they don't live downtown portland it's weird no you know? no that is strange isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well uh thanks so much for having me up to the office sitting yeah. down for a podcast for coming uh, yeah i'm really glad we were able to fit this in so yeah, congratulations it. on your season yeah thanks you too brian okay sounds good all right, guys, that's a wrap. Fun conversation with Ike. Like I say, he's just uh, he's such a fun guy to be around. Uh, he's He's got great perspective and point of view, and he's really smart, and he tells a great story. So he's just the perfect guest for the podcast. So I'm happy to have him on whenever he has the time. And I've actually got to get him on Eastman's Flycast. So that's the fly fishing specific podcast. Uh, he just got back from the, the was he Bahamas? I No, I think he was Mexico. Uh, fishing for bonefish down on the flats down there. I don't know why I didn't get an invite, but um, I do have to get him on the podcast to talk about that. It sounded like a great adventure. Uh, so yeah, I really appreciate Ike and appreciate everything that Eastman's has done for me and for the podcast. Um, it's just great to be teamed up with them uh, on on so many different ventures. So I really appreciate the support. I appreciate the support from you guys, uh, also from Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, if you're in the market for anything hunting or fishing, camping, make sure to check them out at Sportsman's Warehouse. And, um, man, with that, just getting in these, this training and building this this cardio base and um, doing all my map research and trying to draw some tags and just getting ready for this 2021 season. I've uh, been shooting like a madman. In fact, I think I'll go up today and shoot a Vegas round inside, just kind of challenge myself a little bit. But, uh yeah, just shooting that bow a bunch. I'm really getting along good with that V3. That thing is a shooter and just so quiet and um, so forgiving and just no shock at the shot. I'm just, um, 
so impressed at the performance and the forgiveness of that bow. So really loving that thing. So I've been shooting that like a madman and, um, yeah, just getting ready here, putting in my time and getting ready for this, uh, spring bear season and see if I can chase another big boar around the mountains and, um, get my work and responsibility done and things of that nature, hanging out with the fam. So, uh, life is good here from Ennis, Montana. That's for sure. Uh, thanks to you guys, all the support for the podcast, social media, things of that nature. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, that's the episode. I'll check in with you guys next week.